0: to open up to Genesis chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. Genesis chapter 9. Would like to, I may not be the first, but like to be among the first to bid you all a happy Thanksgiving. That's this week, right? And my my calendar's right on okay, good, yeah. <sighs> Thanksgiving on Thursday. I love the day. I've said that, I think, every year for 16 years. I've said over and over, my favorite holiday. I love Thanksgiving. I enjoy the day. First and foremost, because of the simplicity of just giving thanks to not have to think about any other thing, but we're just gonna thank God. I've repeated this many times over 16 years. In fact, I think we've done 16 Thanksgiving teachings over 16 years, but it's Abraham Lincoln who first set things in motion, and I've quoted this before, he declared in 1863, a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in heaven. So that's the purpose of the whole day, and I I love that. I love the simplicity of thanksgiving. I also love family. That's the other thing about the holiday that I love, really all the holidays, although you know the holidays can also bring out the weird in our families. I mean, messy stuff happens in the holiday season. Strange events take place. And with that in mind, I have a family thanksgiving story to share with you as we begin this morning before we even get to the scriptures. It happened on East Carson Street, Long Beach, California, 1955. Memory of a Thanksgiving 64 years ago, indelibly etched in the minds of my mother's side of the family. It was her family. She was 16 years old at the time. And her uh, older sister, Carol, was there, and two younger brothers, uh, Sam and Dave. Dave was just five at the time. Now, the siblings with their parents and several guests were gathered around a long plank table that was set up in the living room of the Smith home just to accommodate everybody. By this point in the story, the day was half over, the turkey was bare-boned, the stuffing stuffed, the yams a sweet marshmallow memory, and the pumpkin pie was finally being passed around as it went around the table. Now, I need to tell you this too. That same year, 1955, a man by the name of Aaron Bunny Lappin, Lappin or Lapine in French means rabbit, so Bunny was his nickname, (laughs) he received a patent, again, 1955, for a product that was already a mainstay in post-war America for specifically the holidays, Ready Whip. Ready Whip, what? You already know where this is going. Whipped cream in an aerosol can. I mean, what better idea has there ever been? (laughs) Pressurized up to 100 pounds per square inch. And it was patented that year. Well, back to East Carson Street, a guest on the side of the table asked for the ready whip can to be passed for their pumpkin pie. And five-year-old Dave picked up the can, whether accidental or not, it is still debated in the family to this day he sprayed the entire company around the table, just (laughs) sprayed the room. People were literally diving out of the way of weaponized whipped cream as it filled the room, a blizzard of Ready Whip. True story, five years old, Ready Whip can. And I thought about that this week. In fact, I even, I emailed my mom and I said, hey, tell me that story again. And so that's where I I relearned a lot of these things. Family is messy. What a great picture of family just being messy. And the holidays come and family can be messy and it it can be wonderful too. Usually it's a mix of the two. Have you noticed that? The blessing of having family together and then the mess when family does finally start to arrive and you just have to deal with both and, and looking around the house at the end of the day and wondering how in the world the structure itself even survived. By the way, let me mention this to you. If you don't have family to have Thanksgiving with, family will be meeting here. So one o'clock on Thanksgiving Day, please come here. There's gonna be a group of wonderful, loving, joyful people who will be here. And what's wonderful about meeting here at the church is you can come for Thanksgiving without all the family dysfunction. So that's a good thing. (laughs) But that invitation goes out to you, and and I I encourage you, if you, um, if you don't have somewhere to be that day, be here, be here. Share, share the love with this family. But I can't imagine, for all the mess that family can cause, being, I, I love my family, so don't get me wrong. I don't think any of them are here this service, so we can be a little more honest. <laughs> I love my family, but I can't imagine being holed up with my family for 378 days on a floating menagerie. Any of you imagine? I mean, you're nowhere else to go. Except maybe up on the third deck or something. I mean, you could move around the ship. But my goodness, all that time, and Noah's family survived that. They survived the ordeal. And coming off of the ark, Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 says, Now the sons of Noah, who came out of the ark, were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. So here's the good news. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all three sons, and Noah came out of the ark. I know they all went into the ark, but the fact that they all came out of the ark says somehow no one murdered somebody else. That's a good thing. So they all came out of the ark, and these three were the sons of Noah. From these, the whole earth was populated. Now, we're going to talk about that. That's what Genesis 10 gets into. Genesis 10 and 11 deals with now the the population of the earth is somewhat of an origins study, if you will. It's called the Table of Nations, and we're going to get into that. Not Wednesday night. Wednesday night is a Thanksgiving worship night. But uh, a week from Wednesday, we'll be getting into the Table of Nations. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at some things in there as well. But this is a it, it, it's, it's the family coming out and then the family spreading out. That, that word populated in verse 19 is literally scattered. So from these, the whole of humanity scattered around the world ultimately. And again, we'll talk about that. But even before the dysfunctional story that we're about to look at in the scriptures took place, even before another messiness emerges here, and I want you to see this because I'm not sure that it's something most people have even noticed, and that is we assume the birth order is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you said, what, what are the order of Noah's sons in terms of birth? Most of us would say, oh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We've heard that, or we read that right here. Shem, Ham, and Japheth came out of the ark. Every time these three boys are mentioned, they're recorded as Shem, Ham, and Japheth. However, if you note down the natural sense in verse 24, it tells us that Noah knew what his youngest son, had done to him. Well, his youngest son being referred to there is Ham. If Ham is the youngest son, then it wouldn't be Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It would be Ham last. Right? And some say, well, no, maybe youngest is younger. No, the, the natural sense of the Hebrew word there is youngest. Positionally, it should not be Ham in the middle, it should be Ham as the youngest. The, the word youngest there in the Hebrew is Katan, K A or, or Q A T A N. Catan, which means least in terms of years. So among these settlers, Ham was Catan. Anyone ever play the game, Settlers of Catan? Okay, so there was a joke there. And perhaps it was too obscure for a Sunday prior to Thanksgiving. I'll let you have that one. But there's something to see here. Note further down in chapter 10, it says also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber, by the way, is where we believe the word Hebrew comes from. More about that in the future. The older brother of Japheth children were born. But here's the thing. The older brother of Japheth is probably not the correct translation either. And some of your margins have this. It should read the brother of Japheth, the elder. So, verse 21 indicates that Shem is the brother of Japheth the elder. Verse uh, 24 in chapter 9 indicates that Ham is the youngest. So, the birth order should be note this, jot this down Japheth is the firstborn, then Shem, then Ham. Okay? Japheth, Shem, Ham. Not Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth, Shem, Ham. Why is. Ham always sandwiched in the middle. There's another one. (laughs) Some say it's because, honestly, geographically, the Shemitic and the Hamitic people stayed in a relatively uh, near place. Shemitic people mostly in the Middle East, Hamitic people going down into Africa. And, and so some say, well, it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth because Shem and Ham were closer and Japheth is the, is the one who, who headed off, moved away toward Europe. At least the people of Japheth headed that direction. And the Table of Nations, chapter 10, does indicate that. So they say, well, that's why it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth because Shem and Ham stayed here and Japheth is the one that moved. That, that's kind of a, a, a okay, not a very good reason for changing up the birth order and and making it Shem, Ham, and Japheth when it should be Japheth, Shem, and Ham. There's a better explanation for this. And it's something that we see, it's a pattern in the Bible in which the second born bypasses the first to receive the blessing, right? Esau and Jacob, Jacob gets the blessing even though he's second born. Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim gets the blessing of firstborn position even though he's the second born. And so here with Japheth and Shem, Shem gets the positional blessing of being the firstborn which is why it's always listed Shem, Ham and Japheth. Shem is put first. Shem the second born based on what the scriptures indicate is always put first even though he's second in line. Why would Shem be called first place when he's actually second? And I think there's something significant there because Shem is the one in the lineage of Jesus Christ. You can see that in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter three, where the lineage is is written out. You see Shem is the one listed. Well, of course, because Shem is the father of the Shemitic people he's the father of Eber the Hebrews father of the Jews and Jesus was a Jew but ham the youngest made a real mess of things it tells us in verse 20 that noah began farming and planted a vineyard he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. I mentioned this Wednesday night. We're going to pause here just for a moment. This is the first time drunkenness is mentioned in the Bible, and so every time you have a first mention, it's worth stopping and noting. Now I know many Thanksgiving tables will probably be set with bottles of wine. I'm not judging that. I'm not saying that shouldn't be the case or the way it is. The Bible doesn't blatantly prohibit the drinking of wine as a sin, however, what it does consistently do is warn against the threat of alcohol to civility, conduct, and clarity. Proverbs chapter 20, verse one says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And I'll tell you, if you would like to uh, if you want your holiday function, to highlight family dysfunction, just add alcohol. <laughs> Easy way to make that happen. But listen to this, and I just want to let the scriptures speak to this. All opinions aside, your opinion, my opinion, whatever our opinions about alcohol and Christians drinking, should we be able to drink some, a beer here, glass of wine there, all opinions, set them aside and just listen to God's word on the matter. Proverbs 23. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 23, somewhere near the middle, so not too hard to find. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29. What's really fun when you're preaching, and I'll let you all turn there, is that people can make an assumption that if you preach a lot about a certain topic, it's because you have an issue with it yourself. (laughs) I don't. I don't, but I know what the scriptures say about this, and I want you to hear it clearly. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or one who lies down on the top of a mast. That's a picture, a biblical picture of instability of uncertainty. Verse 35, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. Talking about the numbness that comes with drinking. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Which is the ironic attitude of drinking. And that's scripture on the matter. That's what the Bible does. The contrast is so clear in the Bible as to what God would desire. What does the Lord say again and again? Be sober, be clear-headed, be alert. And in fact, Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're filled with the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit is what emerges. But when you're filled with the fruit of the vine, what emerges is not always a very good thing. At best, it's a numbing device. Someone's probably sitting there this morning saying, okay, so last week it was money, this week it's drinking, what's next week? (laughs) Back in Genesis chapter nine, understand this is not the only time, and I mentioned this midweek, it is not the only time that wine is paired with naked self-exposure. In fact, the same type of phrase, you can look it up, Lamentations chapter four, verse 21. Habakkuk chapter two, verses 15 and 16 make the same connection of becoming drunk and a person uncovering themselves. And uncovering themselves or uncovering yourself in the scriptures is a euphemism for getting naked. But there's something to that as well that that in the, the drinking process you begin to expose yourself in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. You begin to expose personal feelings that maybe you would filter a little more wisely. You begin to expose foolishness that we all try so hard to hide. (laughs) You begin to expose dumb things. Drinking and self-exposure, drunkenness invites exposure. The Bible draws that out and makes that a, a clear issue. Now, if you look at the word uncovered, Noah, Noah, Oh, Noah, come on. He was doing so well. For how long? 600 years? So you don't think, you know, for who, the, the person who thinks he is strong, let him be careful, lest he fall. 600 years and a, an amazing track record in Noah's life. Preacher of righteousness, builder of the ark, man used by God for salvation. Man who trusted the Lord when no one else would. Man of faith, as the Bible refers to him. And yet after all of that, when he drank of the wine, he became drunk and he uncovered himself. And the word uncovered, gitgal, in the Hebrew means to expose oneself or to strip off. And often in the Bible, it has sexual connotation. We don't know specifically what does it mean he uncovered himself. We don't know exactly what it was. But what we do know is he was doing so well. And it's really a disappointing scene for such a hero of faith. Noah, oh come on Noah. Hear me on this, this is not to diminish or marginalize the sin of Noah in getting drunk and exposed. But we need to understand something here about our brother Noah, who is, was and shall be remembered as a great man of faith. We need to remember what Paul wrote in Romans 3.21, that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Right? Anyone here above the sin of Noah? Well, I've never become naked and uncovered in my tent. Well, good for you. But you've done something. (laughs) You have found yourself exposed. Your sin has been exposed one way or another. So has mine. We have all been there. We are all capable of great sin. As we've said recently, even as we are capable of great faith, faith is the deal. And we talked about this a a bit at the end on Wednesday night. Man, when you fall down, it is by faith that you stand up. Faith in Jesus, faith in his saving grace, and you keep going, seeking his forgiveness, repenting of the falling down, you keep going. And you put your trust and your faith in him because we're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so even after all that happened, this happening with Noah does not, It's it's a disturbing scene, but it doesn't disturb the fact that Noah was a man of faith. He was. And he is remembered throughout scriptures as a righteous man of great faith because, as I said also midweek, faith faith casts a long shadow over a lot of stuff that we may do. We're still trusting Jesus. We're still moving forward. When we know that we've messed it up, we turn to God and we, we confess it. Because we're saved by grace. And so is Noah. Now, that's not to say go have a drunken Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's just to say Noah was considered righteous by faith. It's no excuse for sinning, but it is further proof of the grace of God that in the New Testament, Noah is still held up as an example of faith because what he did right was trust God. He believed in God. And that's, that's what we need to do, trust God, though we should fail, we trust in the Lord. We put our faith in the Lord, not in ourselves. Now, sadly, in the story before us, it's not Noah's faith that's at issue, it's his family. And it's what takes place in a dysfunctional scene. You see, Noah's drunken exposure is actually incidental to the main story. The matter before us, and the reason this story is even kept in the scriptures, is because the matter before us is far more serious to God. Verse 22 Ham, the father of Canaan, that's the second time that's been mentioned so far, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. What is going on here? Noah's failure is one thing. I mean, at least he was in his own tent. Again, not that that excuses him. But what Ham does is clearly far worse or, or it, it, it's, there's something dark and foreboding here even in the way the story is told. There seems to be something embedded in these briefly nondescript verses that meets the eye. There's remarkable restraint here in the Bible in the telling of this story in three short verses and this restraint has led some to make some wild assumptions about what really took place when Ham went into his father's tent. Some suggest something sexual or incestual took place while Noah was drunk. Some rabbis actually claim that Ham castrated his father in his drunkenness so that he couldn't have a fourth son. Still others say that Ham involved his son Canaan and the two of them went in and were involved with some sexually indecent act. All of that sounds gross, twisted, bizarre. Read the commentaries as they come up with all kinds of stuff. For me, I appreciate the Bible's modest distinction. I appreciate that the Bible doesn't go into all kinds of Really dark description. Turning your Bibles over to the book of Ephesians for a moment. Now, I think there's a lesson even here. In the way God's Word treats things, now, God's Word deals with truth, always deals with truth, which is why we can see a story about this man of faith, Noah, in a drunken exposure, because the Bible deals with truth. Hey, it's what happened. Part of how we know the word is true is it doesn't seek to clean up the sin and the failure of humanity. We see it throughout the scriptures. However, it also doesn't highlight every nuance of the sin. It doesn't go into the, the dark and the disgusting. You'll note this throughout the Bible when, when a sin is recounted or when something happens, it, it's, it's covered in a very, very modest way. And that's instructed for us. Ephesians chapter four verse 29, says, "Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Lest we call that where's less. Where are you? There you are. We call that grace for the moment, don't we? Grace for the moment, in how we treat each other, in what we say, in the very words we speak. There is a beautiful biblical filter even on our language. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that that builds up and edifies. Do you realize how much dysfunction in both family and in church would go away if we just did that simple thing? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Look at verse 30. In the same context, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You know what, what grieves the Spirit? when we blurt, when we say things we ought not say, when we dump stuff on each other, when we speak unwholesomely, this does not please the spirit. Then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Skip down to chapter five, verse 11 where Paul continues to say, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, that is the sons of disobedience, but all things become visible when they're exposed to the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. We don't have to take a deep dive into depravity to understand sin. We get it. We know what sin is, we know what darkness is. We all have tasted enough of it to know. We don't have to have it described, we don't have to have it played out on the silver screen. We don't have to read about it in novels. We know what sin is. And in fact, since the Bible says, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, it's better for us not to know the nitty gritty. I don't wanna know the full story of what happened between Ham and Noah in the tent that day. I don't need to know, I don't even need to sit here and think about what could it have been and jot down all the possible depraved possibilities. But there's a lesson to be learned here. This account was probably, probably included as God inspired Moses for a teaching lesson. What do you mean? Go from Ephesians back to Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So third book in the Bible, chapter 18, Leviticus 18, something I I think the Lord, and I think this is part of why the Noah Ham story is here in Genesis chapter nine, precursor to what is now taught in Leviticus chapter 18, verse one. Let me just read this through to you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Okay, right there, that's the standard for all righteousness. I'm the Lord, your God. Let me say to you, as I say to myself this morning, is if he is the Lord, my God, then he is my standard. If he's not the Lord, my God, I can do anything. I will do anything. If he's the Lord, my God, I don't have a right to discount things or to say, ah, yeah, but here's the exception to the rule. No, if he's the Lord, my God, then he's the standard by which I choose to live. I am the Lord, your God you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, past tense, note this, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, Ham's son. We've already been told twice in Genesis 9, Ham had a son named Canaan, Ham had a son named Canaan, and now in Leviticus 18, God's saying, you shall not do what they do in Canaan's land, Where I am bringing you, you shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God, he says again. So you shall keep my statutes, verse five, and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord, he says a third time. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You're going into Canaan's land. Guess what Canaan's dad did? He uncovered nakedness. Verse seven, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. By the way, interesting wording. If you uncover the nakedness of your father, you uncover the nakedness of your mother, mother because the two are one flesh. There's a one flesh union. You dishonor mom, you dishonor dad. You dishonor dad, you dishonor mom. It goes both ways because the two are supposed to be One she's your mother, you are not to uncover her nakedness verse seven continues. Verse eight, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, it's your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister either, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter. Whether born at home or born outside their nakedness, you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter their nakedness, you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter born to your father, she's your sister You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she's your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, you shall not approach his wife, she's your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law she's your son's wife, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman, and of her her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. And then the bottom line, it is lewdness. My goodness, Lord. That's specific. (laughs) 17 verses of not uncovering nakedness and going to every nuance of it. Why would he say what he says? Because this was going on in the land of Canaan. And remember that as Israel comes into the land, how sin sick that culture was. Everything listed in here was taking place, was common in Canaan's land. Where did the people of Canaan learn that? Perhaps from their father Ham. There's a direct line. And God discusses all this and lays it out and he's very specific. And to uncover the nakedness, quote unquote, can either be sexually or it can also be shamefully, that is to dishonor or to undermine the authority. The word lewdness, zima in Hebrew, is wicked, mischievous, or shameful behavior. So I can go to any of that. And when you go back now to the story with Ham going into his father's tent, verse 22, he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside What was it that Ham did that was so bad? I'm gonna just go to the minimum possibility. And again, let all the possible darker things just, that's not our concern, because the Bible doesn't say. At minimum, he humiliated his father. That's the issue. At minimum, Ham dishonored Noah, he saw his father's nakedness, and he told. So he uncovered Noah's sin. And I'll tell you what, parental dignity is a fundamental value in the Bible, regardless of what your relationship is like with a father or a mother. To honor or dishonor, this is a big deal with God. Why? Because it goes to our relationship with him as our father. He's father. We are in a father-son, father-daughter relationship with God. And he establishes family as as a way that we can learn to walk with honor to whoever it is that has been placed in a position of authority over us. And if their authority is abused, if their authority is misused, if their authority is not one that you would follow biblically, that still doesn't give you the right to dishonor, to humiliate, to uncover their sin. Do you know what dad did? Hey, Shem, Japheth, come here. You, got, you would not believe what our father did. How shameful. <laughs> I went in there, I saw it. It was, just, it was embarrassing, right? Dishonor, humiliation. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 says, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Paul goes to the same place, Ephesians chapter 6, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And there is a principle, even a larger principle here for us. Honoring parents is, again, a huge deal, but it also has to do with honoring anyone in authority or dishonoring anyone in authority someone who God, by his will, has placed in a position of authority, a boss, you know, a coworker who who has a position over you, Uh, someone in the family structure who is over you, someone who's just older than you. I gotta tell you, something I've learned in church and in many, many years of serving in church is how much I thought I knew versus how much more those older than me know which is why I have deep respect for everyone who is 56 and older. Because <laughs> the reality is I always land in the place. Five, 10 years from now, when I'm, when I'm 65, I'm gonna realize what those of you who are 65 know that I don't know. I think I know. I think I can tell you what to do. But I don't know. I really don't know. To honor those, to to show honor to other people, to not seek to dishonor. And I'll tell you what, the one thing that drives away humiliating another person more than anything else in favor of honoring another person is my own humility. It's my own humbleness. God wants us to learn how to be humble. Jesus is the picture of humility. The humble heart always seeks to honor everyone else. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't he just show amazing honor to those around him? What about the Pharisees? They were not worthy of honor. (laughs) And that's a completely different conversation. But Jesus brought honor. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. the, The... that concept of God in the flesh emptying himself, we need to, we we, we cannot grasp that. We cannot, we will never comprehend what it meant for Jesus to empty himself of his glory and become human. And not only that, but he humbled himself to be a man. Not only that, but he humbled himself to obedience to death. Not only that, he humbled himself as a man in obedience to death on the cross. And that's the model. That is the standard for you and me in our families, with brothers and sisters mothers and fathers, in our fellowship, in our relationships. I even mean, I had a phrase for this years ago and I may even share this with you. It, it, I call it take the downside. It's taking the downside. It's for the sake of honoring another person, putting them above yourself. Even if you're not sure they're right, take the downside. Be humble. This this is real humility. This is not the false humility that the world teaches. You know, oh, I know I'm great, but you know, (laughs) shucks. (laughs) No, we're talking about truly putting other people before you and assuming they're probably right. And I'm perhaps missing something. And when we see this in in Jesus, it, it, it really affects everything. The cross manifested the most humiliating nakedness of all human history. Why did you do it, Jesus? Why did you go there? Why were you willing to be so empty of all your greatness and your glory? Because love covers. Love covers. Look at how Shem and Japheth walk it out. Verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. They had to figure out how to do this. I mean, think about that. What was the plan? Okay, all right, Uh, Japheth and I'm here, and if we put our arms together and we put a garment over here, then we can kind of walk in and, and we can lay it over dad and we can get out. I mean, they had to have a conversation and had to coordinate how they were going to do this, and what is it that they did? They covered their father. Not only his nakedness, they covered his dishonor. They showed amazing honor to him because they refused to engage in the slanderous gossip of Ham and the dishonor of their father, they refused. They did the best they could do just to honor him. He's still dad. Hey. He was drunk. That was not right. He was self-exposed, a second strike. But they would not even recognize the sin of their father. They covered him. They walked out. Jesus died exposed on the cross to cover us, to offer a, a covering. By the way, do you know what Leviticus 17 is all about? How interesting, Leviticus 18 talks about you shall not uncover the nakedness and then describes all these different situations you are not to get into. Leviticus 17 is all about the greatest covering God offered Israel, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of the blood covering. He describes the blood that would cover Israel and then in the very next chapter he says, do not uncover the nakedness of other people. There is such an amazing principle here. God's design to cover by blood the sins of his people, Israel. So, Leviticus 17 is God's desire to cover. Leviticus 18 warns of humanity's lust to uncover, and that's what we do. And I'm not pointing fingers at you or me. That's what humankind does it uncovers. We love to find out who's at fault, who's to blame. What did they do wrong? How can we expose this for all the world to see? We have gone off the rails in our society. And I I don't even have to give you all kinds of description. Our social media saturated culture, we hide behind the veneer of our own device to smear and to jeer and to gossip and to bully and slander and humiliate other people. And I'm not, again, saying you personally do this. many of you will get on Facebook and you will never say a bad thing about another person, but you know on Facebook how much negative is said. And you know in the social media how brutally it is used to do what? To uncover other people. The contrast of God's covering and man's exposure could not be more stark. It's the contrast between love and lewdness and love covers, please get this concept, love covers. Psalm 32 verse one, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Proverbs 10 verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. 1 Corinthians 13, verse five. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That is to say, real love doesn't keep score. Real love doesn't remember offenses. Real love doesn't hold the past over other people's heads. You know why? Because real love recognizes we're all capable of being mistaken in the past. That we're all trying to see our way through and do the best that we can. And real love says, I acknowledge you right here, right now, where you are, not what you did. Love covers, love covers. Lewdness uncovers. 1 Peter chapter four, verse seven, Peter says, and this is important in where he places this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober, why, for the purpose of prayer, and above all, keep fervent in your love, for one another. Why, Peter? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, as you process this, perhaps someone is thinking, wait, though. What about that earlier verse? Aren't we supposed to expose sin? Didn't Paul say that? Expose sin? Rather than instigating cover-ups? I mean, is that right, that we cover up someone's sins and we hide it? Is that okay, is is that what he's saying? Look back at, at Ephesians chapter five. Flip back over there just for a moment. Ephesians chapter five, I want you to look closely. Ephesians chapter five, verse 11. And watch this, it's important to grasp. Because if this is misunderstood, it can lead to a judgmental intolerance of all people. And that's not what Paul is talking about. Watch this. Verse 11 again, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So right there, we're supposed to uncover sin, right? No. Keep reading. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So clearly, you are not to expose the sin of someone else by telling other people about it. That is not the kind of exposure that Paul's talking about or the Spirit is telling us about. Someone sins, go and broadcast it. No, that is not the kind of exposure. Watch this. It says, verse 13, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Everything that becomes visible is light. What does that mean? That means that you will expose sin simply by living Jesus' way, simply by seeking the light of the world, simply by walking in righteousness. Your life will expose sin around you. Sin will be uncomfortable. And you've probably experienced this. When you're the only one who doesn't laugh at the joke, it makes the jokester uncomfortable. I know that because I've been the jokester. (laughs) Being the only one in the party who's not drinking makes the rest a little uncomfortable. Why aren't they doing it? Well, teetotaler, you know. It's exposing simply. You know what? The Bible even says in Hebrews chapter 11, and I think we mentioned this recently, that Noah simply by building the ark condemned the world. He wasn't out there going, you're all gonna drown. (laughs) He just built the ark. And he said, a flood is coming. God is gonna bring a flood, but this ark is big. There's room, you can be saved. And by simply doing what God asked him to do, he exposed the darkness around him. That's how you expose the sin. That's, you don't expose sin by telling everybody what other people have done, by flashing it on the front page. You expose sin by following Jesus. That is the exposure. That's the process. We are to take no glee in the exposure of the sins of others. The most loving way we can live is to live righteously, Christ-like in the name of Jesus, to do things Jesus' way. And especially, especially dear family, where the family of God is concerned, Galatians chapter six, verse one. Brethren, even if someone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now back to the story. Watch how this plays out. You've got Ham who uncovered his father. You've got Shem and Japheth who honor their father by covering over his sin and walking out without even seeing a thing. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, watch this, cursed be Canaan. Not Ham, but Canaan, Ham's son. He cursed the grandson. I can't even imagine doing that. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. Now, hold fast for a moment. Ham, his his name, the youngest son Ham, his name literally translates either lowlands or dark or hot. And it's very interesting because Ham is the father of the Hamitic people who would settle down into Africa. But note, he doesn't say curse be Ham. This this really bothers me because this has been used uh, in a negative against African people. Oh yeah, well the African people are cursed. No, they're not. The Hamitic people were not cursed. A person was cursed, who by the way, never went down into Africa, Canaan stayed in the land of Canaan. Didn't go south, curse is not on African people. (laughs) The curse is on Canaan. But he says cursed be Canaan, Ham's the father of the Hamitic people. Why is it cursed be Canaan? Why the grandson? And Canaan, by the way, wasn't even Ham's firstborn. He was his lastborn just like Ham was the last born. And something else to notice, verse 25 doesn't give us the context of the emotion. What do you mean? It doesn't tell us that Ham went off in a rage of anger, or, or I'm sorry, Noah, that Noah exploded in a rage of anger when he said, cursed be Cain and a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. We assume that. We see the word cursed, and we assume what he's saying is, curse him! How do you know that's what he's saying? When he just as likely, I think more likely was saying, oh, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Cursed be Canaan if his own father does something like this to me. What is the example, what's the direction? How will his outcome not be cursed if this is what his father does? And remember again, Leviticus 18 refers directly to what is done in the land of Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. What we see here is where there is a fruit, there's a root. Something is passed along. And the sin of Ham is directly referred to as the sin in Canaan's land. So cursed be Canaan. This curse contains two things in it, it contains both a precedence and a prophecy. The precedence having to do with the nature of God, Exodus 34, seven says, the Lord keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Here's the precedence. The Lord visits every generation to see are they following in the sin of their fathers or the faith of their fathers? How is this generation? The Lord would visit Canaan and his generation and see that Canaan emulated the shameful uncovering of his father, Ham. Ham and Noah. And again, not all Hamitic people are cursed. The curse is on Canaan. The curse is not on Ham, and it's not on any of Ham's other sons, Cush or Mizraim or Put. Those three boys aren't mentioned in the curse at all. It is cursed be Canaan. And beyond precedence, what's happening here is Noah, who is a preacher of righteousness, is also a prophet because he is prophesying. It's precedence and it's prophecy. Noah speaks prophetically of a people who would become perverted literally beyond hope. When we get there, and we will in short order uh, in, in Exodus, when the people of Israel, when the children of Israel come back to the promised land and God says, I want you to wipe out the Canaanites. People go, oh wow, what a brutal God. No, this is how bad it was. This is how bad the people of Canaan were. They were rabid dogs. What about the children? The children would grow up to be like the parents because it's all they would be taught. There's actually mercy in God having all the people taken out and the children having a hope of salvation before they turned out as wickedly as their parents did. It's prophetic of what would come in a perverted nation. And by the way, the curse on Canaan is one of the longest lasting curses in all of history. Really? Zechariah chapter 14, talking about in the millennial kingdom, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in, and in Judea or in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts and all whose sacrifice will come and talk and take of them and boil in them and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Cursed be Canaan. But, but the prophetic word of Noah continues as he says in verse 26, blessed Be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And the word his there is plural. It should be let Canaan be their servant. Their who? Shem, the people of Shem, the Shemitic people. Let Canaan be their servant. The Hebrew name, Shem. Sound familiar? Hashem, the name. Shem means name or by extension glory. Glory. The Shemitic peoples settled the Middle East, that's Jews and Arabs alike. And remember the firstborn? Firstborn was Japheth, not Shem. Remember Shem's secondborn gets the blessing of the firstborn, gets the position of the firstborn in the scriptures. But then there's Japheth who's next, verse 27 says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be their servant. Japheth means ruler which historically is fascinating to me because the people of Japheth headed west, settled Europe, and eventually did rule the world from Western civilization. Japheth the ruler, Shem the name, the glory, Ham the dark and the lowlands. And these three, from these three would would then come humanity and humanity would ultimately spread out. But why, note this in verse 27, why does Noah say, let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem? Why? Covering, covering, covering. Because Japheth has come under the cover of the God of Shem through the people of Shem, the Israelites. Romans 9 verse 4, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen, Paul writes. And indeed, salvation has come to all the peoples of the world through a Shemitic Jew named Jesus. So Japheth dwells in the tent of Shem, it's all prophecy. It's all profound and it is all continuing to play out before our very eyes. Listen, we've all been exposed, haven't we? Oh, maybe not naked in your tent. If you're a hiker or a camper, that's, I don't wanna know. We've all been exposed to humiliation. We have all been dishonored. We have all been embarrassed. We have all, at some point or another, had our sins called out in front of us and had to backpedal and defend and and try to hide, we have all exposed our own sin and we have all been exposed by others at some point. And the truth is, Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Here's the thing, you can try to cover yourself. You can try to keep it all hidden not let people know what's really going on in the darkness of the heart and the behavior of the life. You can live the double life, you can put on the mask, you can hide, or you can accept the covering of Jesus. Now, if you've never accepted the covering of Jesus, you're gonna have to do with him. This is something that people sometimes misunderstand that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everybody is going to have to do with God either now or later. You can put it off, you can ignore it, you say, nah, that's not for me, Ah, No, I don't believe it. You're gonna have to deal with God. You're gonna have to do with God one way or another. I would suggest you do with him right now. By choice, you come before him right now. For 1 John chapter 1, verse five says, and let me just read this to you. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin but don't stop there read on if we say we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness come to Jesus confess your need of him and he's not gonna shame or uncover you in front of the whole church or in front of the whole world what Jesus does is saved, is cleansed. You accept his lordship, you all know this, you will be saved. And if someone would accept Jesus this morning, if you never have, you immediately become part of the family of God. Whoa, 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 Rick, but you said family's messy. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. Just poking fun. I love my family, and I love when we're all together. Messy stuff happens. It's been a messy year in the Crawford house. N- not through anybody's choice or, or, or any, you know, really any dysfunction, it's just been a, a messy year. So, you know, family, yeah, family is messy. Listen, I've been in the church my whole life. And I, like many of you, have seen things take place in the church that are just, here we go again. I've seen it happen, I've made it happen, I've been sorrowful when it happens. I've looked back and realized it happened when I didn't even know it was. We need to understand. The world looks at the church and goes, ah, a bunch of hypocrites. And I say, yes, we are. Because we're trying to be what we know we're not. We're trying to be righteous. I know I'm not a righteous man by myself. But I'll tell you what, by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm a righteous man. By faith in Jesus, in what he has done, I know family's messy. Some of us need to keep our hands off the ready whip. (laughs) And we are messy, but that's not why you come to Jesus. It's a byproduct. You, You become part of family. You become part of those who are at least trying to love each other, trying to walk together, trying to be restorative, trying to be forgiving, trying to show grace. We really are. That, that's, that's the offer. That's what the church, we will do our best. But the whole while, we will encourage you as we encourage ourselves to look to Jesus and to trust in Him. So, yes, we are messy, but we are loved. We are so loved. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, dear family, in the story of Noah and what we see take place, we know. It's not just Noah's family, it's our family. We know we're dysfunctional in our natural state, but we also know by Jesus, get this, we are cleansed and we are covered. We're cleansed and we're covered. Cleansed from sin and under the cover now of his authority. See, I've made the distinction, and I wanna make it one more time for you right now. I've made the distinction that we are not just covered by the blood of Jesus. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, right? The blood of animals covered over the sin of Israel for a time because love covers. So cover the sin of Israel until the next year when Yom Kippur came up again, and then the blood would cover over the sins of the nation again for another year, and then the next year, and they just had to do it over and over and over so the blood of animals could only temporarily cover so that God would say, I'm not gonna hold you accountable for this sin. I'm gonna cover you. But the sin was still there, still under the belly, still rolling on until Jesus comes into the scene and Jesus' blood now cleanses, so the sin's gone. But we're still under cover. Not a cover like the covering of sin that goes away, but we are under the cover of the authority of Jesus Christ. So while I'm cleansed from my sin, I'm under his authority, I'm covered by him, I walk with him, let's do that. As a family, let's live to honor him, let's love each other, And by loving each other, that's gonna expose sin. We don't have to worry about that. We don't call it out or shame or humiliate other people. We walk in the light as he is in the light. Amen? Father, we just pray that you would solve the problem of dysfunction by the presence of your spirit through the blood of Jesus in whom we trust. I pray right here, Father, even for those dysfunctional things that take place from time to time in our fellowship. I don't just dismiss them either, Lord. I know sometimes we really get it wrong. And sometimes in trying to do the right thing, we do the wrong thing and hurt each other. And Lord, we're a bunch of imperfect sinners. But we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I I know even as I pray that I'm a sinner, you look at me and say, I don't see it. I I see salvation. Father, I just pray that your grace would saturate our fellowship. I pray and I ask that your grace, that the way you cover us, would saturate into our families. And Father, many of us this week are gonna be with family members who don't believe, family members who, who want to argue the point. And I pray this week, you would give us the divine ability to love like Jesus, with a love that covers with a love that doesn't seek to be judgmental and point out sin, a love that just simply shows the grace that you have shown to us. Father, for this family of the bridge, for our families, oh Jesus, come and be present and remind us that you have us covered. In Jesus' name.